All right, so we're going to study the book of Galatians. Let me give you a nerdy starting point. I would have failed the test in seminary if I did this wrong. But it is Galatians. Not Shans, if anybody cares. It's an A, not an O. But uh, we're going to be studying the book of Galatians. And who can give me a quick answer? Who wrote this book? Apostle Paul. So we're going to come at it from a pretty, um, I say, academic perspective. But we're going to do it with a view towards answering specific practical questions, if that makes any sense. I know we're always a little nerdy, but we might get a little extra nerdy on this particular topic. So go ahead and open up to that book. But I want to go over these, these questions of salvation, and I want to make sure we're all kind of going in the right direction as we think about what we're going to learn in the book of Galatians. So number one, what does it mean to be saved? We use this lingo a lot. Saved. Have you been saved? Are you saved? Um, in general, what do we mean when we say that word? Born again. Born again? That's a good word. What else? Saved from God's wrath. Saved from God's wrath. That's, that's excellent. Adopted into God's family. You know, these are all correct answers, but they're also very different answers. And so we're actually going to see some of all of that um, come up in this text. And if we understand salvation kind of from an academic perspective correctly, and it actually makes it a lot easier to apply the work of salvation to our daily spiritual life and just the, the situations we deal with in life. All of this is going to come up. And how, how do we get saved? So what's the short answer there? How do you get saved? Jesus. All right, that's the really short answer, Jesus. Sunday school answer every now and then is correct. Maybe a little bit more elaborate, though. Confess. I like that word, but confess, what does that even mean? All right, so there's really two completely different notions we can mean there. It's one thing to confess Jesus as Lord. It's quite another thing to confess sins. And depending on which word you mean there, I would give you a thumbs up or a thumbs down for how it regards to the moment even of salvation. We'll get into that in a lot more detail as we, we navigate through the book. All right, any other terms? So how do we get saved? Jesus, we confess, maybe him as Lord, or our sins. Godly what else? Sorrow that we Godly sorrow. So I, let me just throw the word repent up there. That's a good one. <coughs> repent, believe, and usually instead of believe, what's another biblical term? Faith. Faith, yeah. That one's going to come up a lot. <laughs> that word group is going to be very common in the book of Galatians. Um, so what happens when we are saved? Anything change in life? Yeah. Alright, so just simply put, no, no wrath. Whereas Paul would say in Romans 8.1, no condemnation. And in Sue said everything. It's a little broad. Well, your whole life should change. My weight didn't change. No, that didn't change. <laughs> so, I mean, so what we say, so. <laughs> yeah, well, okay, I guess technically I do weigh more now than when I got saved, so. But that's because I'm Baptist. Amen. Baptists have a tendency to eat, so. Um, what else? <laughs> Maybe everything's a little too too broad. Yeah, I agree with you. Spiritual birth. All right, so spiritual birth. Ooh, 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 that, that's excellent. That will come up directly in the book of Galatians. 
What else? Anything else happen to you when you get saved? Okay. Even that, though, when we say born again, we have to mean something substantial, or it's just a religious term. New? All of these relate. So, in some sense, there's a change. Alright, so change of um, location. So you, you were in the kingdom of the world, now you're in the kingdom of God. What other kind of change? So heart change, and then I heard over there, um, not under the law. Um, can I call that an ethical change? You'll permit that one? Okay. Okay. That's a good answer, yeah. What happens if these changes don't seem to be happening? Question mark. So, leads into my next question, though. Can I quit being saved? <laughs> okay, there's a, that's a pretty big caveat. So, the answer is technically then no. And it's like, asterisk. It's kind of what we're saying, right? No, asterisk. Or, or I guess technically I could say yes, asterisk. So in a sense, we're almost not answering the question now. But we will. Well, we'll answer the question very directly in the book of Galatians. And then, where do good works fit into salvation? Oh, I heard two different words. Actually, three. Evidence. I heard result. And I heard right after. And what else? Somebody else said something. <coughs> Maybe not. This is where good works fit in. They're evidence of, a result of, that is an R. Right after. What if you have none at all? Question mark. Question mark. Okay. So without the presence of good works, there's a question mark. All right. How many good works did the thief on the cross have? Okay, so even that's still a relative question. So this is going to come up as well. It's going to be a good come. I'm going to love Galatians. I hope you do too. All right, and let's see what else. How do I know that I am saved? Pray prayer. Got baptized. By my fellowship with Jesus. Okay, so one answer is Holy Spirit. The other answer was Jesus. Believing. Of what? So just the fact that I believe gives me confidence that I'm I'm a Christian. Desire change. So the change is what gives me confidence that I'm a Christian. Conviction. Is what gives me confidence that I'm a Christian. Oh, this is going to be a good book. I'm, I'm so excited. <laughs> Anybody excited about Galatians yet? This is this. We're going to answer all of these questions, just not tonight. So I'm sorry. But you got to come every Wednesday for the next like six months. Is that fair? Can we do that? Yes. 
All right, open up Galatians. Hey, you, I don't think you can drag it out for six months. All right. Oh, well, that's a challenge. That's a challenge. Bruise it out. Yeah. 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 We're not going to get to chapter two. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Wow. Hey, we are covering five verses tonight, James. Yeah. Just right. to be clear. All right, open up the Galatians. We're going to do a lot of setting stuff tonight, but we're going to do it in context. So. Technically, this will be an inductive <laughs> study where we do some deductive practice. So you, that'll make sense. All right, let's dive in. Galatians chapter 1, verse 1. Everybody know where it is in your Bible? Use the table of contents. Get there. It's right before Ephesians. It's right after the first, second Corinthians. So if you find Corinthians, it is next. Galatians 1, 1. It says, Paul, an apostle... Not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. So Paul, an apostle. So let's define that word first. Apostle. He's claiming here to be one under divine authority. What's an apostle? This is capital A. Follower. I would say those are less than. All right, leaders closer. Specifically chosen by God to be a apostle. Chosen is a key element in it. Appointed. That's not bad. Literally, the word just means sent. And does sent have anything to do with those words? Uh, but we mean sent. I mean, all Christians are sent. We don't mean it in that way. What's another way you can be sent? All right, so if someone was sent with a message, what is another word we might use? Missionaries. Missionaries. Close. That's okay. Commissioned. Well, just in our modern context, if someone was sent in any sort of official capacity, ambassador is not a bad word. Messenger. Authority. Authority is a key word here. It's someone who's sent with authority. An ambassador has the authority to speak on behalf of the one who is sent. And this is what distinguishes the apostles from the other believers in the New Testament. And you can think about this several times. We see it in the New Testament across both the, the Gospels and in Acts. The apostles often don't ask God's permission to do things. If they want to heal someone, they just do it. Whereas if we want to see someone healed, what would we do? We would pray and ask God to do it. They would just say, be healed. So Paul's in a unique category, but he's awkwardly in this category. For what reason? Came last. Came last. Let's be more precise, though. Last in what sense? So he comes not only after the other 12, but he comes after the crucifixion. He comes after the resurrection. He comes after Pentecost. He comes after the early days of the church. And then when he finally shows up on the scene, what's he doing? He's, he's persecuting. He's leading the opposition. Uh, many Christians die because of the work that he has done. He was a Pharisee. And so he's on the wrong team. And then what happens? It's in Acts chapter 9. He's on the road to Damascus. Let's read it. Flip back. 
want you to see, we're going to look at Paul, his conversion stories told three times in the book of Acts. And we're going to look at those three different times real quick. So Acts chapter 9, and we're just going to read, for starters, verse 15, or we'll start at 14. Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 15. So Paul's on the road to Damascus. He's seen the blinding light. And I'm going to read. This is what, so he gets blind. He goes to the, the room, and then um, Ananias has to come tell him. And in verse 14, no, 15. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he will suffer for my name's sake. All right, so step one is God tells Paul he's going to do what? He's going to suffer. But suffer in what capacity? Really, we would use the word, it's apostolic suffering. It's a, he's a chosen instrument to fulfill a specific role. We'll flip to Acts 22. This is later, way later in Paul's ministry. He's now defending himself, and he's retelling the story, in this case, of what happened when he got saved. We're going to look at 22, 14. It says, and he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. So that one's not that different. But then if we jump over to 26, this is the last time Paul tells this story, and we get a slightly different version. But it's the same same basic idea. So 26, picking up in verse 16, But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things to which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you... Um, from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in my name. So we just have, that's three re- retellings of the same story, but Paul is specifically designated by God. He calls himself the untimely apostle. Um, he is chosen to be an apostle directly by Jesus. So that's your first point. Paul was called to be an apostle directly by Jesus, which is what he's referencing here in Galatians um, in the first verse. So Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. All right, so before we go any further, let's just ask a very simple question. Why would Paul start the letter that way? Hey, I'm Paul. Jesus gave me authority. It's essentially what he says. To, why would he need to validate himself? So what you say over here? He's writing to a church. Well, it's a church for the most part that would know who he was. So why why emphasize uh, Jesus picked me? All right, he, he's emphasizing he has authority. Now, the authority comes from God, but by saying the authority comes from God, he's emphasizing, therefore, he has authority. That's going to be very significant for what he says in the passage. So just follow that away. All right, let's keep going. So it says, through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So Paul follows, and this is a very big deal for Paul, he follows the risen Christ. 
fresh coffee if anybody wants. Oh, it's very fresh before. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, was that hot? No, it was a little hot. Yeah. That was McDonald's gets sued though. Hot. Okay. Hot <laughs> water. It's just sometimes I read the text. And just, yeah. <laughs> My apologies, brother. Oh well, no, it's good. It's good. Wake me up. All right. So Paul follows the risen Christ. All right. Next, the resurrection of Christ and ultimate of all believers plays a prominent role in all of Paul's letters. That'll be no exception in Galatians. Um, Paul, he he goes back and forth between emphasizing the cross and the resurrection. And Paul does that so fluidly that really at times, no matter which one he's talking about, he has the other in view. Um, they are two sides of the same coin, but uh, both will play a very significant role in this book. Next, verse 2. And all the brothers who were with me to the churches of Galatia. Now, that's interesting. What... Um, number, grammatically, is the word churches. Plural. It's plural. So it's plural. Well, what is Galatia then? You know what Galatia is? It's not a city. Unlike many of Paul's letters, he's writing to a church in a city. Galatia is a region. Now, there's debate historically about which region exactly it is. But if this is the, the Middle East, Egypt down there, this is Turkey where the apostle is, and Galatia... There's a northern and south Galatia. It could really refer to any of the territories around there. There's even debate about which particular group it is. For our purposes studying the book of Galatians, it does not matter. We just know that this is an area here that Paul had done ministry in. He's writing back to the churches, to this whole region of churches, and he's going to really get frustrated with them. So let's talk about that context. So the setting for Galatians. There's been a lot of time just talking about that phrase to the churches of Galatia. So Paul planted the church in Galatia in the early days of his apostolic ministry. Now, what point um, did he officially become the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts? Do you know? Officially. What? When he changed his name. When did he change his name? It is when he changed his name. He went up to start uh, working with the uh, Gentiles. Well, like chapter 15 or so. It's chapter 13, Acts 13, and here's the scenario. So here in Antioch, um, they have a prayer meeting. The Spirit says, take Saul and Barnabas and set them aside and going to send them on a mission trip. So they send them to Barnabas' hometown. That's way disproportionate to Cyprus. It's somewhere near there. There's just an island there, and it's Cyprus. So Barnabas and Saul come to Cyprus. Barnabas is having a hard time leading the mission trip. Um, Paul steps up and just curses a man with blindness. And from that point forward, he's the Apostle Paul, and Barnabas no longer has a name. Um, That's how significant. It goes from Barnabas and Saul to Paul and those other people. Literally, that's how it transitions in the passage. But he becomes the leader of a Gentile mission trip. What's a Gentile? Non-Jewish. Non-Jewish. Specifically, non-Jewish. So that's our next blank. So the church had a large percentage of Gentile believers. So let's just try to brainstorm quickly what some of the differences would be between a Gentile group of people and a Jewish group of people. The Gentiles on the one side, Jews on the other side. Tell me some differences between these groups of people. Jews are circumcised. 
<laughs> My daughter would, would bring that up. Yep. <laughs> Law? Bacon. I just put bacon. Y'all are with me though. Bacon. The Jews would go in and they answer the temple. Okay. I'm going to put uh, numerically one temple. Gentiles go to temple two. I'm going to call them pagan. It's the formal term for the, the Greek religion at the time, as the Romans called it, paganism. In fact, the Gentiles would have considered the Christians atheists because they didn't believe in the gods of paganism. And they thought they were all false. All right, what else is another difference? Covenant. Well, so a huge culture. So we can talk Sabbath, even hairstyle, clothing, housing. And we said bacon over there, but just food in general. It's very precise, cultural on the Jewish side. And it's, it's not just that they have preferences. This is a religious distinction between them and the Gentiles. Well, to get a little more... Um, What's the first word under culture? Sabbath. Okay. What else, anything the pagans do that the Jews would never do? Idol worship. All right, so idol worship. <clears throat> they would eat the meat from the uh, uh, worship of idol. Yeah, and that's what we're getting at when we say bacon. Yeah. All right. Um, I'm going to be not specific. <laughs> Parties were a big deal in their culture. Yeah. Um, Anything else? That is true, but of a different flavor. Oh, we'll get we'll get to that. That that comes up in Galatians. Okay. Um, and language. Greek first. Greek second. They probably all spoke Greek, but. It's the difference between being a primary Greek speaker and a secondary Greek speaker. See the difference? So do you think it's going to matter that where Paul's planning the church, it's mostly these people in the church? It's going to have any impact? I mean, can you think of any parallel in modern culture here? Yes. <laughs> All right, so let's, let's, we don't have to be politically correct. So... This is your first Baptist crowd, and this is the we used to be bad crowd, right? I mean, that's, so this is your a we've never, and a we don't anymore. So you're going to see more tattoos in this church than in this church, just, just as an example. You wouldn't, though, right? And this church is going to look more like us. <laughs> this will look more like a... You know, you're stereotypical. I'm not saying anything about the specific one here. But uh, just what is stereotypically true. All right, so this is our setting. So Paul plants this church. And before we fill in the next blank, let's just think about the theological significance of this difference. So I don't have time to walk through the entire narrative of Acts. But when the church begins, which group is getting saved? Jews. Only Jews. Only on this side. Like we have to go several chapters in before we even get a Gentile convert. And the first 
converts are actually Samaritans, and they're kind of like, well, we can count them kind of because they're kind of Jews, but they're kind of not Jews. So there's this tension with them coming into the church. But then when we do finally see some Gentiles get saved, you remember who the, the evangelist was at that meeting? First, Peter. So Peter preaches the gospel to Cornelius and his family. And uh, do you remember the story? This is Acts chapter 10. He's preaching the gospel. He didn't have an invitation or anything. He's just preaching the gospel of Jesus. And what happens in the room? Do you remember? Holy Spirit comes down, fills them. They begin speaking in tongues. Now, that's very significant to Peter. When was the last time Peter saw something that dramatic? They have Pentecost. What happened to him and the others? He saw the Spirit do the same thing. So for Peter, he knows what happened in the room. Those people got saved. Well, were they still on this side? Now, granted, there's things on this they've got to stop, but they're, they're not on this side. They're definitely not circumcised. They haven't started following the law. They've never been to the temple. They don't keep the Sabbath. Uh, their hairstyle doesn't instantly change when they get filled with the Spirit. None of, none of this does, actually. They're just very Gentile, very pagan. And then Peter has to come home to the church and say, so this thing happened. Um, and he's kind of hesitant to say it. You can feel it in the, in the narrative. Uh, a bunch of Gentiles got saved. And how do you think the church responded? You would hope they would say, oh, praise the Lord. He's doing a great work. That's not what he said. It's uh, more of your, <coughs> we don't want those kinds of people coming to our church. Okay, that's not literally how they said it. Um, but that's the heart. It's like, no, nah, God doesn't work that way. God can't save people like that. Now, eventually, we get to Acts chapter 15. That specific issue is settled. And they have a big church council and say, do you have to become Jewish in order to be a Christian? What's the simple answer? You should know that. No, you do not have to become Jewish in order to be a Christian. However, the book of Galatians happens between Acts 13 and Acts 15. So when he's writing this book, he doesn't have the letter to say, hey, we have an official policy. That's not a problem. This is, so it's going to be a big deal with what he's talking about in Galatians. So next, as a planting missionary, Paul never stayed long in one area, but left to continue ministry elsewhere. So the church, you can imagine, stayed very solid while he was present. Then as soon as he leaves, and as, unless there's a strong leader there, there's potential for something to go wrong, and that's where the significance of the book of Galatians is going to come into play. So a group of people that we call Judaizers. Not a biblical term, it's just what we, later in history, call them because they don't have a name in the Bible. They're just they're just Jews that are acting poorly. So we're, we call them Judaizers. And some people point out that they're not the ones who are Judaizing. They're just trying to force other people to be. So what do you think Jude stands for, the, that part of the word? Jewish. Jewish. So we're going to call them the make Jewish-ers. <laughs> They make people Jewishers. I don't know. Whatever you got to say to make this work. So their philosophy is if you're a Gentile and you want to be a Christian, you've got to holistically move to this side. Okay, what's the sign of the covenant in the Old Testament? How do you enter into it? You've got to be circumcised. If you're not circumcised, you're not one of us. You still eat the bacon, you're not one of us. If you hang out with people that eat the bacon, you're not one of us. It was an absolute cultural 
segregation. So the Judaizers move into the churches of Galatia that is predominantly Gentile Christians, and they say, mm, Paul, Paul misled you. He only gave you the intro. He didn't give you the full story. So you'll hear expressions like the full gospel. Or usually when someone says the full gospel, it's, it's a negative term, actually, because they're trying to imply that no one else has it. And so that's what their strategy is. The full gospel, guys, is that you have to obey the law. The full gospel is you have to get circumcised. The full gospel is there's 613 laws in the Old Testament that still apply to you. And so, well, without Paul present, what do you think the church does? False way. Start believing this doctrine. And so, let's see, we fill in the whole thing. So, a group of people called the Judaizers poisoned the church with false teaching, which emphasized the necessity of Jewish customs for salvation. And Paul writes the letter to the church in response to the negative influence of these Judaizers. So this is the setting of the book of Galatians. He's got wind that this went down. He's mad. He sends a letter. It's, in some senses, the angry letter of Paul, all of Paul's letters, with an exception. Start with a long, oh, I thank God so much for you, the work that's happening there. And uh, there's nothing positive about them. And what we'll see in verse 6, which we'll do next week, he says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you into the grace of the gospel. He's just mad from start to finish. His language is a little rougher, a little harsher at times. We compare this to the Philippian letter, where it's like every other phrase, man, rejoice in the Lord, y'all are awesome. It's the happy letter. It's the joyful letter. Galatians could be seen as the opposite letter. He's mad. It's a big deal. Paul is willing to fight when you mess with the gospel. It's amazing because there's plenty of times Paul seems willing to, hey guys, let's just unity before our theological disagreements. But when it's the gospel, no, we fight. Fists up, I'm taking you down. And that's where he's at in the book of Galatians. So we're going to be dealing with that as we go. But before we do that, we have to finish Paul's introduction, which is beginning in verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So grace to you and peace. You know, we can spend a lot of time talking about the significance of those two words. The reality is, it's just how Paul greets people. I mean, there's theological significance to why he uses those two words. But the reality is, it's just, it's just a greeting. So this is customary greeting in Paul's letters. If you scan, skim, skim through Paul's letters, you'll see that this is very common. And it's just a greeting. So grace to you and peace. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What I want to do, however, is expound on the second part of that phrase. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. little side note on how to read the Apostle Paul. You're familiar with the doctrine of the Trinity. What's the basics of the doctrine of the Trinity? Three and one. All right, so one God... Three-something. The more you study that in church history, the less specific you can be about what that means. <laughs> you know, I used to be like, you have to use the word persons. And the more I study it, I realize the word persons doesn't even mean persons. So it's like, okay, three-something. So what are the three-something? Father, Son, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. 
Now, when you read the Old Testament, how clear is that? Not real clear. In fact, read the Old Testament. If you were going to land anywhere, you'd just be here. Now, from a New Testament perspective, we can see things. Okay, well, now that we know, these things make sense. We can see a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But in the New Testament, does it directly say that God is a Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit at the same time? No, it actually doesn't. It's so assumed that it skips past the explanation and just operates in this world seamlessly. So let me show you something about the Apostle Paul. The Father is God. Almost every time the Apostle Paul uses the word God, and if you care, this is Theos um, in Greek. Every time, so the name Theo, things like theology. Every time Paul says God, you can assume He's talking about the Father. So how do you word that? Grace to be, or, um, yeah, grace to be in peace from God, our Father. And then who's next? And the Lord, Jesus Christ. Paul almost exclusively uses the word Lord to refer to the second person of the Trinity, which is Jesus Christ. This is theologically huge. In the Old Testament, what's God's name? Yahweh. But what's significant about Yahweh when they translate it into other languages? Like even when they read it in Hebrew, they come to the name of God himself. What do they say? Do you know? Lord. Lord. Wouldn't, they wouldn't say Yahweh. They would say Lord instead. In fact, we, we discussed before, they were, you know, they didn't say Yahweh, so they would say in Hebrew what was Adonai. If you take the vowels of Adonai and put them into, because they didn't have vowels in, in Hebrew, you take Lord's vowels and put it in Yahweh, you get Jehovah. That's where that name comes from. But uh, they didn't say Yahweh, so they said Lord. So when the Old Testament got translated into Greek, which is what we have in the New Testament era, you don't see Yahweh in there once. It's just not in there. Instead, you have the, the New Testament word for Lord, which is Kyrios. It's just Lord every single time. So who is God if you read the Greek Old Testament? The Lord is. The Lord is God. It's really significant that they call Jesus the Lord. That by itself is a claim to deity. But for the Apostle Paul, these two terms represent these two persons. You want to see an example? There's several really good examples of this. Flip back, hold Galatians there. Go backwards a few pages to 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12. We're going to look at verse 4. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4. We're going to talk about spiritual gifts there. We won't get into that, but I want to show you this pattern. It says, now there are varieties of gifts, the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but the same God. What did Paul just do? This is Trinity. That's his lingo. So he says, God, Lord, Spirit. This is his normal functioning operating lingo to refer to God. He's just assuming the Trinity in all of his language. Another example, so right after Galatians is the book of Ephesians. Look at chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, um, starting in 4. So Ephesians 4, 4, after we've been told to walk in this calling and walk in love with one another. It says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in the one hope of your um, call, the hope that belongs to your call. Verse 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And in verse 6, 
One God and Father of all. What did Paul do there? See them all? There's one Spirit. There's one Lord. There's one God. It says three different words for the Godhead, for the Trinity. So that's how Paul uses this lingo. So, next points in the outline. God generally refers to the Father. Lord generally refers to Christ. You follow what I'm saying there? So when you're reading the Apostle Paul, you see those two words. It is safe to assume which one he's talking about just based on which word he used. Is he talking about the Father or is he talking about the Son? And the Spirit is just Spirit. Next, let's finish Galatians. Um, verse. Hey, real quick, just to be. Uh, yeah. So in, in Greek, is, is that pneuma? Is yes, yes, okay. yes. The, the word spirit is pneuma, breath. Right. Synonymous, they're, they're exactly the same word. So it depends on the context. You know, sometimes it's hard. He's talking about a human spirit, just the spirit of something, was like, a, you know, the spirit of jealousy. It's not necessarily a literal spirit. Or is it the Holy Spirit? So it, sometimes that is difficult to determine. All right, so let's see. Verse 4. And this is the Lord Jesus who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. So the gospel according to Paul is all about the work of Christ for our sins. But he said to deliver us from what? He died for our sins to do what? In that verse. A year says evil time, mine says present, evil, evil age. Well, this is very significant in Paul's lingo. If you think about the kingdom of God, Jesus said repent for the kingdom of God is what? At hand. The illustration I've always seen people use. So this is this is the P, present evil age. And this is the ATC, H to come, God's kingdom. And it is invading. Salvation, in one sense, is Jesus getting us out of this one and into this one. It's a very common theme for Paul. We see it in all of his letters in some fashion. Sometimes he uses those exact wordings, and sometimes it's other wordings. But that's what salvation is doing, and it's always in connection with our sin. Jesus has to do something to our sin to get us from the present evil age into the age to come. Now, this is very significant. Let's fill in the next part of that, that blank. So the gospel according to Paul is all about the work of Christ for our sins, not our work for our sins. This, this is everything for the book of Galatians. If you get no other point from the book of Galatians as we go forward, it's that you don't save you. Christ saves you. And there is a big difference between the religion produced if you get that wrong versus if you get that right. If you think your work saves you, then you're going to have a very legalistic form of Christianity. And if you understand grace, then you're going to have a very transformational form of Christianity, which is exactly where we're headed. So he gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. So on one side you have Jesus doing this work, but it's like up, up in heaven, God the Father is making the plan. It's common lingo for Paul, where God the Father is seen as the architect, and God the Son is the one on earth accomplishing the will. And it's, it's more nuanced than that, and we'll see that as we go through. But that's a general 
principle we can operate from. And so this is how we're going to fill in that blank. So the Father is working out his glorious plan for salvation among all nations, which is the mystery of the ages for his own glory. Now, this is significant. God is doing a work to save people among all nations. Though what Paul's going to have an encounter with is this Jewish people believe the gospel is for who? The Jews. Because what are the Jews? God's chosen people. We're special. We're God's people. And Paul's going to constantly remind them, say, no, 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 no. Who was the first Jew? Technically. Abraham. Right. Hey, technically Abraham, you know, a- Abram, to be fair, okay. But what was the promise made to Abram? That through your offspring, what who would be blessed? All the families of the earth or all the nations. Paul's saying, no, 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 no. If you think it's all about you, you've been confused about this from the very beginning. God's plan was to save everybody. Y'all were a tool in the process. And Paul's excited to be one of those. So he was part of that. He's Jewish. He loves his heritage. But God's here to save all mankind from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And if we emphasize our Jewishness over the gospel, we're missing out on God's plan. And that's going to be one of the main themes of the book of Galatians. And this is the great mystery. In fact, the word mystery in Paul's language often refers to the Gentiles being included in the plan. It's a bigger term than just that. But it's commonly what Paul's talking about. You can see that in Ephesians of chapter 3. That's a very clear distinction. It's kind of hinted at in, in Ephesians chapter 1. But you see it all over Paul's writings that this crazy idea that from the very beginning God planned to include the Gentiles without them becoming Jewish is the idea. Now let's put on our last blank and we will wrap it up for this evening. So our goal as believers is to conform to the image of Christ inwardly, not to conform to the behavior of godliness externally. That's kind of the theme of the book. So our goal as believers is to conform to the image of Christ inwardly, not to conform to the behavior of godliness externally. So let's just think before we formally wrap it up, let's think about what the Judaizers are trying to get people to do. What's just some of the lists of things that Judaizer wants these Gentile Christians to do? Get circumcised. Get circumcised. No bacon. No bacon. No parties. No, par- no parties. No parties either way, but uh, not the kinds of parties we're talking about. Um, assimilate. Assimilate. Well, that's a good word. Yeah. What is Paul preaching, though? Jesus is the perfect image of God. But is Jesus God or man? It's both. But for a very significant conversation, he's human. What kind of human? Perfect. Perfect human. Perfect because his external actions are correct. Well, his external actions are correct. Yeah, in him and, or in, in but why are his external actions correct? Because he's internally perfect. He becomes then our form, call it our model, our example, 
Paul says, I'm laboring until Christ is formed in you. Paul says in Colossians chapter 1 that the mystery of the gospel is Christ in you. This is what we're going to see in the Galatians. Paul is not concerned about what you eat. He's not concerned about your outward behavior. He's concerned about one simple reality. Is Christ being formed in you? The wording in Galatians is going to be, I'm crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live, I live by faith. That is the Christian life. It's one inwardly that has an outward effect. But if it's not inward, doesn't matter what your outward works are, you're not truly a believer. The believer is the one who Christ is in. And that's what the book of Galatians is going to argue. Are there any questions? A little earlier than normal, so floor is open. Judy? <laughs> okay. Where are you at? Um, I need the first one on the... The resurrection of Christ and ultimately all... Okay, Prominent, yes. Yeah, so I was trying to find that. I was like, where is that? Okay. And anybody else? I got more. Oh, 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 oh. The setting under the second Gentile believers. Oh, you got it. You got it. Okay. All right. Any any questions about the text at all? Where we're going? This is the most boring one from here on out. It's just going to be in your face. I'm excited. It's going to be fun stuff. So be prepared. So. Assurance, eternal security, good works, all of that's going to come up in multiple ways, different angles as we go through. Abby? Hey, um, I, I missed it. Oh, I, I'm okay, well, I'll, I'll hook you up. You'll be good. <laughs> I can print you out the filled in. Right. This is mainly a Gentile church. Okay, it's okay, baby. <laughs> Yeah, so so every every church in the first century world has Jewish people in it. Um, so it's he gets most of his resistance from that group, and that's why he's always it's almost every letter, even if he's happy with them, he's like he's got to remind the church, hey, you know, God saves everybody. But at the same time, he's always reminding the Gentiles, hey, don't. Don't eat the bacon in front of your Jewish brothers. Like, that's not smart. So, so he, he's constantly doing some of that. Well, finally, the Galatians, he's less friendly towards Judaism just because of the situation that's happening. And some of the other letters, he's a little more gracious. But in this letter, like, it's a gospel issue, so he's laying the law down. They'll do it pretty dramatically. Wasn't there one book I, that Luther found revolutionary? Was it this one or Romans? That Romans is the one that he made a big deal about. And then he hated the book of James just because he misread it. That's what it was there. All right, anything else? Well, if you want to turn, that's the sky. Let's uh, pray and we'll be dismissed. God, we thank you for tonight. Pray that you bless the time we spend in your word. Pray that you would help us to study Galatians faithfully, that we would apply it to our lives, and we would uh, gain some growth, transformation through this process. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now my coffee's probably safe to drink. <laughs> I don't know. That's cool.